Lord, here we have this picture of all of our stories. Blindness followed by sight. And yet, Lord, even now, we acknowledge as we look into your scriptures, it's hard to understand. There are times, Lord, when when we see and when we read, but we still make ourselves the focus. We still put ourselves at the center of the stories that we're reading. We still look for heroes to emulate rather than seeing a Savior to throw ourselves on the mercies of. And so, Lord, we, we ask now for continued mercies as we open your word. Lord, as we seek to, to understand and to know what it is that you've done, who you are, who we are, Lord who you are. So let us, let us see these basic realities. Help us, Spirit of God, would you make known to us Jesus this morning in your name. Amen. All right, well, back in the early 2000s, there was this group of coal miners in northern India that found themselves trapped together more than a thousand feet below the earth's surface. They, they um, work in what continues to be, to, to this day, the deepest underground coal mine in the world, or, or one of them. It descends at its, at its deepest part to a, around 2,000 feet, a little bit more than that. And, and this story, you know, wasn't a national news story, let alone a global one. It wasn't like that story from a few years ago where those boys on the soccer team got trapped in the cave in Thailand, remember? And it made this, just made national headlines and then global headlines. It was a big deal. But here it wasn't. Why? Because these kinds of things happen every week at Jharkhand. People are getting trapped all the time. There there aren't safety regulations in place. Um, People often die in the midst of this coal mine. It just wasn't a story. And some of these workers, you know, they worked the night shift. They would go down when it was already dark on the surface. They'd come back and when day was beginning to break, they'd spend their day then outside of the mine. But some of these workers worked the day shift, which means they would come down into the mine before sunrise or right as day was beginning to break, and they'd come back up again after the sun had already set. So they lived their whole working lives, their whole adult lives in practical darkness. They'd essentially become creatures of the darkness. Their eyes had become accustomed to the darkness. And because of how the schedule worked, there were a few moments in which both groups, the day shift and the night shift, were in the mines together transferring tools, transferring responsibilities, briefing one another about the progress that was made, things that would have to take place during the next shift, right? And in this case, there was a major collapse during the time that both groups were in the mine. So this is essentially the entire mining community of Jharkhand trapped more than 1,000 feet below the surface together, all right? And it's a precarious situation during collapses like this because eyes are, eyes are naturally adjusting, even as lights burn out. Eyes are accustomed to the darkness, right? But it can still be deceiving. You can attempt to grope your way along and take what looks like to a way out, only to find that it plummets you down further into the depths. And so the company on the surface mounted an aggressive rescue effort that included sending workmen down into the mines with these bright floodlights. And the idea was that as these floodlights made their way to the workers who were trapped, it would turn, turn the mine into day. It would essentially be like they were on the surface. That's how bright these lights were. And they did this so that the miners could see, number one, the paths to avoid 
that would lead to certain death, as well as the paths to take that would lead to life again, that would lead to the surface in the midst of this rescue. But there were different responses to that light from the men. They responded differently. For some, it was a miracle. You know, the light offered the only means of finding their way to safety. Like, it gave sight to the blind. Like, they couldn't see, and then all of a sudden, it was like they were outside. They could see perfectly the way out. But for others, the sudden transition from the absolute darkness to what amounted to intense, you know, white, bright daylight caused a recoil and disgust at the light. Their eyes simply weren't ready, weren't accustomed. Not only did they fail to appreciate what was being held out, but the light itself appeared to be blinding to them. And so here we see a theme. As we look to John 9, as Emma just read for us, we see a theme that's making something of a a similar distinction in the text, okay? As we begin chapter 9, we see an immediate connection with this Feast of the Tabernacles that Jesus has been teaching at and, and conversing with a crowd at, and I think shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is in this long dialogue. We've been slowly making our way through that in chapters 7 and 8. But it connects there because here at the Feast of Tabernacles, do you remember? It's a ceremony of light, right? So there's these, um, these large torches. Some sources say these torches extended all the, in the outer courts all the way up to the top of the walls that would burn throughout the night and festivities in the midst of all that light shining. And this was meant to represent the light that God was for his people throughout the Old Testament, the light burning and, and guiding and leading Israel through the wilderness, right? And do you remember what Jesus said already in chapter 8, verse 12? He says, in the midst of all that, right, he's saying, I'm the light of the world. Like that, all of that is talking about me. It's talking about me. That's who I am. Right? And here in this chapter, he's actually going to repeat those words because here we see a clear picture of what happens when that light shines out, when that light shines. Some are miraculously made to see, while others, whose eyes have grown accustomed to the darkness, who think they see just fine already, continue to desire just to grope their way along. Why? Because they're reviled by it. They stumble away in their own blindness. And so that distinction is an important one in John's gospel. How do you respond to the gospel? How do you respond to the light as it shines out? Because as we said already, you know, he, he wants to shepherd his readers to rightly respond to Jesus. The, the question that looms over us as we study John is what are you going to do with the person of Jesus? You know, Jesus is, is standing there What do you do with him? Here's this account from eyewitnesses talking about what Jesus claimed about himself, who he believed himself to be at the very least, and the signs he performed before these eyewitnesses, the story of his life, death, and resurrection. And the idea is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the person of Jesus? So he wants us to rightly respond, but he also wants to demonstrate He wants to warn us by demonstrating what it looks like to reject him, to reject that light. So we see this distinction in the text this morning as we look there in five parts of the narrative. Okay, five parts of the narrative beginning in verses 1 and 2. So set your eyes there with me. Now, John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man 
blind from birth. As, he passed, as Jesus passes by, he sees a man blind from birth. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So this narrative really begins with what we'll call gospel confusion. Okay, gospel confusion. Here Jesus has been with the disciples, you know, healing people, proclaiming his sheer grace to the listeners, to, to the hearers, proclaiming his mercy throughout his ministry, and yet his disciples ask in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. And the reason we're calling this gospel confusion this morning is because, you know, here you have the disciples really echoing what, what was the prevailing view of Palestinian Judaism during the time of Jesus, which is that sin and suffering go hand in hand. You know, sin and suffering are joined at the hip. That one causes the other, that they're intimately connected. You know, and if we're being honest, we need to say that the reality is this wasn't simply the, view, the, the prevailing view of Palestinian Judaism during the time of Jesus. It's not so simple as that. It appears to also be a dominant view all over the world. It appears to be a dominant view across religious systems and even into irreligion. It appears to be something that is very easy for us to fall into and to fall prey to. And that's because it's, it's really the default mode of the human heart. We can't help ourselves. We, we routinely need to, it seems, connect our being with our doing. You know, we make this connection between our being, who we are, and our doing, our activity, you know. We routinely need to believe, even as we saw in the last chapter, if I obey well enough, if I'm a good enough person, if I do the right things, well then, I'll be blessed. I'll live a blessed life. You know, I'll live a good life. And you know, we might not say, we might not say God owes me something, because that seems like a lot of hubris to say God owes me something, but we feel it. You know, if we're being honest, that can kind of get us sometimes. It, it can poke at us. God owes me a good life because I've earned something. This is called moralism. And we see the, trek, the train wreck that moralism really is when it's applied to suffering because, listen, someone suffers and it's so easy to blame that person. You know, in the midst of moralism, in fact, that's exactly what happens. So if you approach the Bible as a moralist, or if you approach life generally as a moralist, and you think, if I'm a good, if I'm a good enough person, then I'll live a blessed life, then by definition, right, if something happens that's tragic, well, it's the fault of that person. We pick that person apart. What's wrong with that person? Why couldn't that person avoid such a tragedy? What did they do wrong? Like tragedies are to be avoided. Why couldn't they avoid it? We want to blame and blame and blame because blame, especially in suffering, naturally flows out of the idea that if I'm good enough, God will bless me. If I'm good enough, God will bless me. Right? So the disciples here, and it doesn't just have an outward effect. It also, we should say, has an inward effect because then when I'm experiencing suffering, what do I do? It's self-anguish. I blame myself. Oh, what did I what did I do, right? Like, God must be disciplining me. He must be punishing me, you know, for this. Like, I'm, I've got this sickness, and so God must be punishing me with the sickness, or whatever it is, we start to pick ourselves apart, too. So the disciples, they're not just echoing a distinctly Jewish view. I mean, they are, but it goes beyond that. They're really echoing the default mode of their hearts, of our hearts. The attempt to be in control of their spiritual lives, the idea that they can do it. 
you know, that they can save themselves to some degree, that they can find God's blessing in their work. And listen, the text says, and we really do need to look at it, look, set your eyes on verse 2 again. What are the first three words, at least in the ESV? What are the three, first three words? And his disciples. Who, who asked it? Who asks this? The disciples ask him this, you know? Like, not the disciples with spurious faith in chapter 6 that all abandoned him. These are the disciples who said, we want to respond to Jesus by following Jesus as he revealed himself. The ones who said, like, you and you alone have the words of eternal life, and that's why we're following you. And yet they're the ones who now ask, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Who's to blame here for this blindness? And that should show us this kind of gospel confusion, right? That's what this is, gospel confusion that all of us are, are so very susceptible to. I preached this text before, by the way, dealing more with the ideas of suffering, like how should Christians approach suffering, and if you're interested in that, that was really the main emphasis when we've gone through like our questions, common questions from skeptics series. But this morning, we really see it in the text as an example of gospel confusion, because at its baseline, the disciples really completely missed the grace of God. This is the grace of God completely missed. No aspect of the grace of God is present in blaming someone else for, the, for this kind of a tragedy because they weren't good enough or smart enough or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it's not that they haven't heard Jesus proclaim the grace of God in, in gospel proclamations. We know that. We've been preaching through John for a while. But we can say they haven't fully understood it and they cer certainly haven't applied it. When we realize that moralism is a total farce, it's total nonsense, when we realize that we can't save ourselves, that we can't operate in a way that would be good enough for God to bless us because we all share in the same fundamental problem, because like, listen, if God's way of dealing with things was you sin so you'll be born blind, everyone here would be blind. We would all be blind. All right? And when we realize that, but then when we also realize the grace of Christ that he offers us, a lot of what we're about to read about here, the gospel frees us. It frees us from judgmentalism against others as, as, as others suffer. We can speak words of comfort and grace and mercy into the midst of the suffering. Right? We're also freed from self-anguish when we suffer because we know that this isn't, it's not the reason primarily for our suffering. Okay, so what is the reason? If this is gospel confusion because it puts the focus on what we're doing and completely misses what God has done in Jesus, it completely misses the grace of God, then how do we rightly understand the gospel and apply it? Well, here we come from gospel confusion now to gospel clarification. Set your eyes on verses three through five, okay? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. All right, let's start to process these words together. Verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here we, we go from gospel confusion, the grace of God completely missed, misunderstood, forgotten, right? Not applied. 
to now gospel clarification, and this is the grace of God explained, Jesus in his mercy explains further. Because in his clarification to their confusion, look, he just doesn't use the same categories that his disciples were using to process the question. He just doesn't talk in the same categories of the disciples. He, 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 you know, he doesn't completely disregard the connection between sin and suffering, right? And I was going to talk about this at the front end, but I think we can see it here. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 that's never how it works. Suffering's never the result of sin. Because we know that that's not true. Like, we know that there can be times when suffering is a direct result of our decisions. Of course that's true. And we come to realize that at a very young age. You know, like, if my kids disobey the day after Halloween, and, you know, um, this is, a, a form of this has happened, right, uh, in the deck household. But if they, if, if they hear mom and dad for their own good say, you can take one piece of candy out a day, after you've eaten your food, after the vegetables, until it's all gone, kind of a deal, right? Um, and they, they disobey and they sneak out their big jack-o'-lantern shaped bucket and start downing the candy in one sitting. They're gonna get sick, you know? They're gonna be sick. That suffering of the, the upset stomach is a direct result of their disobedience in every way, right? One led to the other. And we see that in larger scale ways all the time. We experience that in larger scale ways all the time. All right? Decisions that we make now that leads to some kind of suffering later on. So Jesus doesn't say, oh, that never happens. But he insists that in matters like this one, where there's kind of this like someone gets cancer and there's this guessing game about what, what, I, what I must have done wrong to anger God or what how he must be punishing me, something under the surface that isn't identified, that isn't clearly spelled out to us. In matters such as this, it's not the sin of the man or the parents that's, that is the reason behind the suffering. This man's blindness was not outside God's sovereignty. Far from it. Listen, Jesus is saying, he answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's not outside of God's sovereignty. It's actually within his control. And because it's within his control, it's also within his good purpose. Good purpose. That's really hard to understand. How could God have a good purpose for my suffering? And we want to we have like a full answer to that. But it's hard because the, the answer that we're given is, Trust me. Now, there are reasons that we're going to see this morning that we can trust this God in those moments. But clearly, it's within his good purposes. In other words, even when we don't understand what God's good purpose was in the midst of some tragedy that occurred in my life, we can be assured that he does indeed have one because he stepped into our suffering. He faced it head on at the cross. And we'll see that more and more as we go. It's within his control, Jesus tells us. And, 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 and actually, I can prove it to you because look at verses 4 and 5. He tells us in order to truly understand the reason for our suffering, the reason for this man's blindness, his disciples should look no further than who Jesus is and what it is that he's come to do. His work, his activity, his identity. Verses 4 and 5, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So a lot of things that Jesus says here, he makes these claims specifically talking about his identity and his activity in this world, okay? But first we see he's exclusively the sent one. So here we have Jesus 
Describing himself as the one that the Father sent into the world. He entered the world, and as he entered the world, he became the light of the world. What does this sound like? John chapter 1, every week, the prologue, how John began this whole thing. Again, he, 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 it brings us right back. We see the symbolism of John between day or light and darkness and night. And Jesus' words remind us of what he'll say later on in chapter 12. This is essentially the point he's making here. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe the light that you may become sons of the light. So in his gospel clarification, Jesus says, He's explaining. This is the grace of God explained, right? He's explaining this by giving us a word picture. Further emphasis on what he just talked about in chapter 8. A word picture between seeing and being blind. You know, light and darkness. And Jesus himself, he's not only the light that enables us to see, but he's the one that the light enables us to see. You know, he's not just the one who comes with the light that shines out, but he's the one that we now see because of that light. Do we see like, he's the sent one that we see through whom everything's made right, through whom now the world makes sense, through whom now we can understand his word to us, through whom our whole lives are changed, as we'll see in a minute. So the disciples fall back into moralism, okay? In gospel confusion, they root themselves firmly in what they need to do to earn somehow God's blessing, his favor. Gospel confusion, the grace of God completely missed. Jesus offers gospel clarification, rooting them not in their work for God to give them blessing, but rather on God's work, specifically in Christ, in, in Jesus, who he is. Right? This is the gospel explained, the power of the grace of God at work in us, the grace of God explained. And now we, we get to see what he's talking about because here in verses 6 and 7 we see gospel transformation. Set your eyes there with me. Having said these things, he, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. You know, here you have, and I think, so Jesus, obviously so masterful at helping us see these word pictures, because here you have the perfect opportunity, you know, the perfect picture, the perfect drama from which to show us, to show his disciples, to show people who are listening how absurd it is that you could save yourself, how absurd the idea would be that you could save yourself. Like, here's a situation in which this man could do nothing to improve upon his problem. He is blind. Like, you wouldn't anticipate somebody comes to you with just utter and complete blindness. It's not like, well, we'll give you some eye exercises. You know, there's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can do to right his situation, right? He can't give himself sight. What kind of nonsense is that? We don't think those, in those terms. But when the stakes are much higher and actually when it's even much more impossible than that, all of a sudden we think, wow, we can save ourselves, right? So, so um, in, instead of a good works applied to this situation, some kind of intervention in which the man tries to save himself, which would be impossible, we see here the, the grace of God applied. Here's where we see it applied. 
how does Jesus do this? How does, he, how does he show us? How does he give us a picture of this grace? Well, he takes mud and saliva, you know, he spits on this dirt, and he applies it to the man's eyes. I don't know if you pay attention to these kinds of news stories, but a few years back, there was this megachurch pastor who was preaching on the same passage, and he actually had someone come up, and he spat in his hand, and he spread it all over. So I was just thinking, is there a volunteer? Um, no, it's our... Listen, things like this really weird us out. Like things like this that we read in the scriptures, even if, even if like internally it's like, I trust Jesus, we don't necessarily, at the very least, we could say, I don't understand. I don't understand this, why, why he would do this. And I have to be honest with you and say, it's extremely difficult to figure it out. You know, like the text doesn't give us a, a real one-to-one. In this case, Here's why Jesus uses saliva and mud. And there's a lot of theories that abound. Um, and listen, I just want to say pastorally, and this is something that you could like write down and apply to a lot of things, the cuter the theory, the less likely is it's true. Okay? And, and, and this is the problem that we have to come back to a lot at Gospel Life because, listen, the reality is the cuter the theory, the more play it gets. You know, the cuter the theory, the more books it sells. The cuter the theory, the more... People watch the YouTube video, right? So, so um, yeah, there are a lot of cute theories that abound on this. If you're ever reading a book with this really cute theory about a word in the Bible or a sentence in the Bible that then gets applied and is made to look a lot larger than that, um, I want to encourage you to beware. Okay, but, but listen, I also want to say I don't really know totally what this means. I do have a guess. I do have... I think we can, maybe, maybe we can get close, but I want to say it in humility. It is pretty plain, though, you know, more on the obvious side of things, okay? But uh, the Old Testament, as well as later Jewish sources, later Jewish traditions, taught that human saliva was ceremonially unclean, right? That if you were to touch it, you'd have to be proclaimed clean. You'd have to go through the ceremonial rituals, right? So, it would make you unclean. So we talked about this last week a little bit. If you want to go back and listen, it, it'll explain maybe a little bit further. But you, know, you have in the Old Testament moral laws and ceremonial laws. And the moral laws flow out of the heart of God. These like do not kill, do not steal. These are things that are, are you know, the sexual ethics certainly flow out of these moral laws because they're a f- reflection of God's character. They're a reflection of of. of Morality because they're a reflection of God's heart. And so when the gospel changes our hearts, these things change too. Like the way that we treat one another. These, these moral laws uh, continue to, to, to come to fruition in the life of the Christian because of the gospel at work. But there are these ceremonial clean laws in the Old Testament too in which God's people had to make themselves clean, clean themselves up for worship. What kind of, you know, could they eat shellfish, fabric to avoid? We, we talked about some of those things last week. I think Jesus is essentially saying, I have claim of authority over this. At the very least, like, we can say theologically that's true about the passage, right? So he's claiming authority over that which is considered unclean. He's, he's, he's really positioning himself as the fulfillment of it. Like, you, you, he's saying essentially, you think you can make yourself clean? Like, these laws were given so that you could see that you can't make yourself clean enough. And I've come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I've come to make you clean, not by helping you keep the ceremonial law, because that will never make you clean. 
I've come by taking your punishment because you couldn't keep to all of the law, because you were imperfect before me. Jesus is saying all this points to me. It's not that different, really, from his first sign in John. Do you remember what his first sign was? Turning the water into wine, in which there were these pots that were used for ceremonial hand washing. It says they were filled to the brim, right? The law completely fulfilled. So that's my sense, anyways. I think that's what's going on here, but I'm not entirely sure. The mud pack is made. It's applied to the man's eyes. I think it's intended as a picture of gospel application in that sense. And, and that's made even more explicit, though, by the instructions that this man is given by Jesus because he's told, go and wash. And where is he, where is he told to go and wash? The Pool of Siloam. And where it's really difficult to figure out the mud pack stuff, it's not really difficult to figure out what, what the significance of the pool is because the text actually tells us. Right? John explains what the Hebrew word here means, which means sent. And, and we know, right, like, just as this pool is, is known as sent, Jesus was also the sent one. He just told us this in verses 4 to 5. He grant, grants sight to the blind man, which symbolizes in many ways the reason he was sent into this world, you know, to give us sight, to give sight to the eyes of the blind. He was sent to bring spiritual illumination into darkness. He was sent to show us himself, to give us sight, to be the one that we see, you know. He, he was sent to obey the will of the Father. And listen, the Father sent him in the same way this blind man's called to now obey Jesus when he's sent to the pool. What was the will of the Father that Jesus was called to obey? How exactly would it enable us to see? Well, the will of the Father was that the Son would come to die. He was sent to die. He was sent to suffer in our place, this is why we can know that in the midst of his goodness, even when we don't understand tragedy, we can trust that he has a good reason for suffering because he came to suffer. That's the very way we would see it. It sounds so backwards when we think of it, when we consider the Messiah, the sent one. Guys, the king of all the universe came into this world to give his life up so that we could keep ours. But more than that, to die so that we could die to our old selves, the old selves, the striving, the manipulating, the sinful rebellion in the midst. The old self dies and we find new life in Christ by way of the grace of God, right? By way of the grace of God, we see this at work. So this is gospel transformation the grace of God applied. And, and we see, though, that as, as this happens, as we come to see when the gospel is applied internally, when we come to believe it, when we come to trust in Christ, as that grows, so does the way in which we show that gospel to the world around us. And not only does it work in you, but also it work through you to others. Here's where we see gospel reverberation. Number four, set your eyes on verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, said it is he. Others said, no, but it's like him. Like some people are like, it can't be. Right, it can't be him because he was blind and now he sees. So this has to be like a doppelganger. Like you guys are... 
I, I agree that, have you ever seen someone at like a grocery store and you're convinced that it's your friend? That's kind of the idea here. They're like, oh, it must just be someone who looks exactly like the dude and you're mistaken. So they said, so, so, but he kept saying, I know I am the man, right? So how wild is this? Okay, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and washed. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I, I do not know. Listen, later on in the New Testament, specifically in the epistles, all right, Paul, Peter, John, and other New Testament authors will write about this phenomenon in which our gospel transformation has this like visible, tangible effect on those who observe it, you know? So Peter writes, you know, Peter instructs his readers, Peter who's here witnessing this, you know, he writes, keep your conduct honorable so that when the world speaks against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God. Like the gospel bears fruit, it produces works. And those good works are there for others to see that they might see them and glorify God. They're not what saves us, but because of the grace of God at work in us, it changes us, it has an effect, and the surrounding world sees this. And we see this happening here because this man has a radical change, a transformation, an encounter with Jesus that has utterly turned his world upside down. It has changed everything for him. It's given him sight when he's never seen before, and I want you to imagine what that would be like. So, of course, the neighbors see this change. They're used to him begging in blindness, you know? We're not told how the people know that he's been blind since birth, but I think the idea implicit here is that they know because they, like he's a, he's a well-known commodity in their community, you know? Like, some of them potentially knew him as a child. They saw him grow up. Now he's begging here. They've seen it. They know he's not faking. He obviously sees. He hasn't just been faking for the last however many years, you know, for this moment. And I think, here's what I think. I think sometimes, at least one of the reasons, that Christians often don't share our testimony, and myself included in this, right, this isn't like lecture hour for you guys. This is like me too. We don't realize the extent of the miracle. Like this man, imagine him not going around and shouting and telling. Imagine him this happening and he's like, yeah, but I mean, I, will, they, will, they, will they think it's a big deal? Did this happen to me? You know, imagine him processing that way. That'd be absurd. And imagine the crowd kind of shrugging at the news and then just going back to work. It's obviously not how they respond because it's so crazy miraculous, right? But listen, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus and you think the work of Christ in your life is somehow not as miraculous as what happened to this blind man, I want to encourage you to see, to see how small of a view that really is. How small of a view we have on this, me, myself included, right? Like, because what was true of him is absolutely true of you, only on a much larger scale with eternity at stake. 
You know, and what's true of the crowd is true of the world in which we live because there are those who are eager to hear about the grace of Christ. They're eager to hear about it. They know internally that they can't save themselves. They know internally that something is wrong, that something's amiss, that there must, you know, if there would be good news of a Savior proclaimed, they'd be eager to hear it. There are people who live in our world who desire to hear of the grace of Christ. So what's true of this man is true of you. What's true of the crowd is what's true of the world. And what Jesus did to give you sight was just as miraculous because you could have never done it for yourself. Do you understand? More so. Spiritual death to spiritual life. That's what we're talking about here. You know. So this man offers his testimony, tells the full story again, starting in verse 11. We get some like repetition of gospel here, which I think is really cool and helpful. It prompts the natural questions that we would like to see prompted with our non-believing friends. You know, we would, when we share our testimony with others, what are we hoping for? We're hoping for these kinds of questions. Like, how did this, how did this transformation happen in your life? Where's the man who did it? Where can we find him? Like, we want our friends to respond to our testimony in this way. Um, rather than kind of like a disconnected illustration of how this works. Let me give you a real-life example of how the very thing we're talking about does bear fruit. It does work. Let me encourage you in this. So today is, so grace of God extended. Gospel reverberation, the grace of God extended to the world around us. How does this work? Today is the, it's the 10th anniversary. Today, this picture was taken this morning in Schumpert, Czech Republic, the 10th anniversary of Kostelinac. It's a church in the Czech Republic that, um, I've been partnered with for years. And this is where it's helpful to be seven hours behind them, you know, because they took this this morning, but for them it's like a, a lot farther. A lot longer ago, in fact, if, uh, you know, if, if Vashik preached in English, I would just uh, follow after his sermon series all the time, but unfortunately I can't understand anything he says. Um, the lead pastor here, his name is Vashik. Vashik is right here, bearded man, kid on his shoulders, but he was not always so bearded. I met Vashik when he was 17, okay? And Vashik, he openly mocked Christians. In the first English camp I came to, he snuck alcohol into camp and, and was drunk. His friends would always talk about, I mean, he's just drunk all the time. Living a life that really saw Christianity as just utter foolishness and didn't just see it that way. He was, I promise you, it's true, not afraid to tell you that. Like he came and lived, spent some time with us in Minnesota and, and like just openly mocking church, openly mocking, you know. And yet the Lord did a work. He's reading Romans one day in, in his bedroom and he was reading to find like inconsistencies in the Bible that he could use to disprove all the stupid Christians and he finishes with this chapter and he's, he's like, oh no. You know, he's like, it's true. And he was mad that it was true because it, you know, it meant that he couldn't like mock the Christians, right? So, um, but he's like, it's true. And he came to faith in Christ and like, not immediately, right? I mean, like the, the grace of God is at work in us and it's a process for all of us in this, but it's like his, his life changed. It really turned upside down. And like in Schumpert, his friends, like Boschik's like this guy who is who's like front and center in a lot of ways, very attractive guy. And man, and people noticed. They noticed the change. 
You're like, who did this to you, you know? These kinds of questions, like, where's the person who did this to you? Where's the old Vashik? And this continued to just have this cascading effect. I mean, he's standing next to his friend Petter, and his friend Petter notices the change. And, and you know, it's still the same Vashik in some ways. He's still very intense, but he's intense for the Lord. And, you know, he still mocks me plenty, but just not in the same way. And, um, and, and Petter comes to know the Lord, and he's still this brilliant entrepreneurial guy, but he's entrepreneurial to start new churches. And, and you know, 90% of the people that you see in this picture are first-generation Christians. Do you want to talk about, like, generational change and gospel growth? 90% of the people, first-generation Christians, hearing the gospel proclaimed in part by God using these kinds of changes over and over and over again in the midst of their community, the grace of God extended you know, like testimonies going out and people wanting to know, how did this transformation happen? Where's the man who did it? Where can we find him? And our desire is to point others to the one who did it. You know, we're in the, we're in the same mission, church planting. The man here says, I don't know where he is. That's a fair question. But for us, we can say differently. We can point our friends to the scriptures. We can introduce them to him. We can pray with them. Right? So this is gospel reverberation and a great picture of it on Christelli Knox's 10th anniversary the grace of God extended to us. It's extended to others. It also shapes and transforms us so that others take, take, take notice. But that's not the only response we also see, and we're going to spend more time here next week. But we see, um, fifthly, gospel opposition. And we're going to spend time unpacking what that looks like next week. Gospel opposition. Verses 13 and 17, 13 through 17. They brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, formerly been blind, like a few minutes ago. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he asked them, he, he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. So we see more gospel repetition, the testimony is told again. Verse 16, but some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner, do such signs. And there was a division among them, among the Pharisees, right? So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So the Pharisees asked this man how he'd received sight, just as the crowd did, but they have obviously different motives. We'll see those exposed even more next week. He recounts to them the story again. It starts a bit of debate from within the Pharisees. They want to know what this man's impression was, and he tells them Jesus is a prophet. Now, you might hear that initially and say, well, okay, um, uh, gospel opposition is happening here. The grace of God is being opposed, and in the midst of that, the guy's not getting the question right uh, because he says Jesus is a prophet. But listen, uh, he's not wrong. Sure, it's an incomplete picture of Jesus. He's not just a prophet, but he is a prophet. He's the prophet. So he isn't incorrect and, and very different from the other dude that Jesus healed back in chapter 5, on, also on the Sabbath. This guy immediately sides with Jesus. When given the opportunity, and man, next week you'll see how the gospel's really at work, he immediately sides with Jesus. You can see the gospel applied in all of his responses. And it's in these responses that we see how we might continue to point to Christ even in the midst of gospel opposition. Look, there are those in the world who desperately want to hear the gospel of Christ, the grace of God proclaimed into the world, right? They're desperate to hear it. There are others who will oppose it. They will oppose it. And we see a picture of how we might 
respond in the midst of that. I think there are a lot of us who hear that, though, and we get a little nervous, and we say, well, I'm not qualified for that. I'm not qualified for biblical apologetics. I'm not qualified to give all of my Christian friends all of the reasons, or all of my atheist friends or non-Christian friends, the reasons that they should believe, you know. We get a little intimidated. Listen to what Carson says here. It says, he had no particular expertise in law, theology, or scripture, but as the Pharisees remark, it was your eyes he opened. He had no expertise in these things. But what was his credentials? The fact that God did a mighty work in his life. The niceties of the Sabbath regulations do not concern him. He knows a work of God was done in his life, and therefore, the human agent must be an extraordinary individual, a prophet, someone sent with God's word. We might feel like, man, I'm not qualified for this work, but you are. Why? By nature of the work that God's done in you. So Carson sums it up. This man's eyes are opening wider. So do you see? Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture at work? Like the, the multiple layers of meaning? This man's eyes are opening wider. He's beginning to see more clearly while the eyes of his judges are being clouded over with blinding theological mist. Like, yeah, physically he had never seen before, but now his eyes are really opening. Now he sees, but his eyes are really opening. Yeah, the Pharisees have seen physically their whole life. Man, they're blind as bats. They can't see a thing. Okay, listen. We're forgetful creatures. And I want to direct you. I know you can't read this. Uh, I want to direct you to this car, card out front called, called Why We Exist. So it's on the front table. But this essentially unpacks exactly what we see here in John chapter 9. We're forgetful creatures. We come together on Sundays. Why? Because throughout the week, we face gospel confusion. The same gospel confusion we see in verses 1 and 2. From the disciples, we experience weekly. We've, we hear competing voices. We face competing loves, competing desires. We're in danger of missing, altogether missing the grace of God. Forgetting it. We're forgetful creatures, right? So we come together here for gospel clarity. Not here, you understand, but here. Here's where we come for gospel clarity. We come, and what do we do? We sing the words of the gospel together. We recount back and forth. We pray the words of the gospel together. We, we confess it. We spend time in liturgy. Our liturgy tells the story. It's, it's ordered to tell the story of the gospel together. We need to, to hear this gospel clarity, right? The grace of God further explained into the depths of our heart that we might live by it, that we might have gospel transformation, the grace of God applied to all of life, shaking out its implications everywhere. And as we do that, it echoes out into the world. It smashes competing voices throughout the week, false idols, as we do that together, right? Like, it's not just Sunday morning, but men's Bible study, women's Bible study, the community groups that you're a part of, the young men's you know, high school and college study that's starting soon, youth group, all these various places. What's our goal? It's to be proclaiming the gospel to one another's hearts, to be reminding one another of that, to help each other understand how do we apply that gospel to this area of my life, into this area of my life, to root all of life in it so that then others take notice like of our gospel community. The gospel reverberates here, but it reverberates, it reverberates in our midst, but it reverberates in the world around us. It's extended so that people can see that this gospel doesn't just, it's not just some set of list of things that we claim to believe, but it shapes, you know, our view of suffering. It shapes how we work and how we go about our work life. You know, it shapes how we spend our money. It shapes how we relate to our neighbors. It shapes how we engage in politics. It shapes all of these various things. And it looks very different from the world around us, and so people want to know 
What, what caused this? And that same gospel brings opposition, and it gives us the grace not to pridefully, in the midst of that opposition, point to ourselves, you know, and say like, we're some arbiters of logic and reasoning that came to this conclusion because we're so smart. So we don't approach this as the arbiters of logic and reasoning and what's wrong with all those people who don't get it like we do, but rather as arbiters of sheer grace who know that a work of God was done in our lives and therefore the one who did that work must be the one sent from God. If you don't know this God who holds this out to you, this good news of his grace and his mercy and his love to you today, you can know him. You can have this transformation in him. He desires to give you sight. He desires to be the one you see, the one through whom the, you can see everything else, right? It requires, a, though, a recognition of your blindness, a confession of your present reality, the reality that you can't possibly save yourself. That it's true that this idea of moralism, it's broken and it's impossible, and we all, I think, really sense it. But in the midst of that, like, maybe hopelessness of, like, I can't save myself, it holds out this hope that you don't have to because of what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. So throw yourself on his mercies today, today, now. If you believe in Jesus, you're a part of his body, you believe in him, continue to fall on the grace that enables you to seek for the good of others. Continue to, to, to fall on that grace that, that enables you to extend the gospel to the world around you. Continue to, to preach to yourself that grace and mercy that enables you to think of the person you desperately also want to have sight, that neighbor or that friend or that family member who you desperately want to see, to have sight, to bring them your testimony, to share about this mighty work of God in you, to bring them into the life of Gospel Life Church, to share the gospel with them. And all this happens not because of us, but because of the one who is sent by God that we might know him. So let's pray for his grace and mercy as we seek to do these things. Lord, our efforts are nothing. Your grace is everything. And yet, Lord, through you and through what you've done, we desire to strive. We desire to to see our friends and neighbors and coworkers come to faith in you. We desire those things, not because of us, but because of you. And so, Lord, even as Gospel Life Church seeks to apply this, to proclaim the gospel in such a way that it stirs us inwardly and pushes us out into the world, that shows this difference, continually make known to us that it's only by your grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.